Okay, a'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem, bismillahirrahmanirrahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa salatu wa salamu ala sayyidina muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Okay, salam alaykum again everybody who's here in person um, and welcome also to anybody who might listen to this podcast later on. Um, discussion uh, that uh, um, I've prepared for today uh, in some ways will follow on from what we spoke about last time. Um, for those who haven't um, for those of you who weren't here or who didn't get a chance to listen to uh, the recording, um, yeah, I'll sort of quickly recap, you know, just the main issue that will be of relevance um, to, to today's discussion. Today's discussion is going to be on um, a section of Bediruzzaman Said Nursi's Risali Nur, his treatise of light, um, known as the 11th Flash, and um, a certain section within that called the seventh point, okay? Uh, the seventh point, it's, yeah, very short. It's um, like a page and a bit, right? It's really, really short. Um, and this section is about adab, okay? It's about adab. Um, and Bediruzzaman's going to um, link the issue of adab to um, the issue, or, you know, or the notion of um, the Isma al-Husna, okay? The, you know, the uh, beautiful names of Allah. Um which is really, really core, you know, to his entire Risale. Um, we touched on the divine names last time, okay. Um, we did speak about the fact that, um, like in the context of Qadr, in the context of divine determining, um, you know, this notion whereby Allah, logically prior to his creation of the universe, logically prior to his creation of all of us and our lives within this universe, he's had an intention, a will, a plan for how it's all going to play out, okay? You know, remember we said right down to every little detail, right? You know, from the way your body is going to look to all the events in which you're going to be involved um, to the motions of every particle, right? Everything has been planned and that plan even um, has been recorded. It's recorded in some format. Um, Who's Mahia, we don't know, um, but there's a record of it. It's known as the preserved tablet, the law for mahfuz. Um, so we spoke about divine determining and uh, its relation to free will and human responsibility for, for actions. Um, and as part of that discussion, we touched on this really important issue, right, of why is it that, why is it that Allah creates in the first place, you know? Um, so we said that he's Everything is done in accordance with a plan. Everything appears in a lawful mahfuz. It's all part of qadr. Uh, in, un- in other words, nothing is um, happenstance. Okay? Nothing is by accident. Nothing is by chance. Right? Um, we don't really even have a word for chance. Um, you know, yeah, we don't have... Yeah, we don't use the word chance um, in Islam. Okay? We have other words like tawafuq. You know, um, events can sort of coincide in a certain sense, but nothing is by chance. Nothing is natural. Right? We don't have a notion of something's being natural. Uh, these are um, really, really important points because to overlook them is, in most cases, to commit shirk. Okay, um, you know, a form of hidden shirk. So we spoke about all of that, um, and we said that. Okay, Allah does everything in accordance with a plan. Um, you know, he has an intention for why he creates. What is that intention? His intention is that he wants to manifest 
the beauty and perfection of his names and attributes. All right. um, so every single thing that occurs is in one way or another manifesting Allah's beauty. All right. um, even the events in which we're involved, right, uh, we said that we cannot really claim ownership of the beauty of those events. Right? Let's say um, you know, there's a man in need of some sort of assistance. Let's say a person's injured themselves right, uh, in a traffic accident. <laughs> I see this occur, I pull over, um, I get out, grab my first aid kit, and I, and I you know, um, administer some first aid. Right? I, administer, I administer some first aid, let's say, to this person. Now, what is all of that? It's largely a set of physical events, right? I mean, there's a non-physical element to it as well. Um, there's a non-physical element which is cons consists in things such as, for example, um, my choosing to become involved in those events, right? You know, prior to pulling over and helping this man, I intend to do this, don't I? Like, out of countless choices put before me, I choose, in fact, to pull over. I mean, I could have just kept driving, um, but I choose to pull over. That's a mental act, we said last week, right? That's a critical difference. It's not a physical event. Um, there might be certain physical events that occur um, in conjunction with it, for example, certain electrochemical activity in my brain, my nervous system and so on, sure, that all occurs too. Um, but the part of it that pertains to me is just the mental event in which I make a choice and that occurs in my mind. Right? That's a function of the ruh, the spirit. It's, the spirit is the sort of thing um, that can do those sorts of things. You know, it's the sort of thing that can you know, um, engage in cognition and you know, it can mem remember things, it can choose and so on. It can do things like that. Um, our only share in the beauty of the physical events that take place in the universe, even the ones in which we appear to be physically involved, uh, our share in them is limited just to the making of certain choices. Right? Um, but those choices we were commanded to make. Notice, right? We were commanded to make them. You know, Allah enjoins good and forbids evil, right? It's just a general principle in the religion. Um, like, it would probably be haram to, indeed, um, drive past someone who needs help, right? If you can help, yeah, it's probably haram not to help, right? I mean, that's probably uncontroversial. So, um, Allah has commanded that you do it. In fact, he's threatened you with punishment if you don't do it, let's pretend, um, and has given you countless forms of guidance to make these kinds of correct choices. So, even the beauty in the making of a correct choice um, hardly belongs to you. Sure, you made the choice, but the beauty of it um, still, still must be attributed to Allah. Okay? Um, and certainly the physical event, right? So that physical event in which my car parks in a certain location and then these arms and these legs, you know, get out of the car and you know, sort of move from one location in space to another, being my car to the location of the injured person, all of that is entirely dependent upon Allah's power, upon the manifestation of Allah's names and attributes. Okay? None of that can occur thanks to me. Right? I can only, um, in a way, make a dua for them. I can only choose for them to happen. Right? Yeah, like even something simple like um, reaching forward for that bottle of water. I choose to do that. Then I'm entirely dependent upon Allah to move all of the particles of my arm, 
all in unison over there so that it can grasp this and bring it over here. Um, if it wasn't for Allah, moment by moment, allowing those sorts of things to happen, they're not going to happen. Um, so what the, the whole point in Qadr, Bediruzaman said, right? The whole point in there being such a thing as Qadr among the you know, tenets of faith that the Muslim has to believe is just to remind us of the fact that, look, um, you know, have humility. Right? Your share in the beauty that is manifested out there in this world um, is almost non-existent. Uh, it's limited to the making of certain choices. Um, and even though them you can hardly you know, claim ownership of. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's there to save you from egotism. It's there to save you from seeing yourself as the locus of, um, or the, you know, the true cause, um, yeah, the real cause of uh, the beauty that, that we see manifested here in this world. Okay? Um, what, that, what those events truly are, Bediruzman says elsewhere in the Disali in order, right? those events, they have a certain reality. Right? There is a reality to them. You know? um, like if you ask me what is a certain thing, right? as a Muslim, right? as a as just a Sunni Muslim, as a mainstream Muslim, um, you know, if you were to ask me what any given physical thing or physical event in the universe is, the answer must always be the same. It must always be the same in general, right? It must be this, that it is, but this is going to say, um, it is in truth a manifestation of divine beauty, right? It's a manifestation of one or more divine names or attributes of Allah. That's what things really are. That's their purpose, right? Um, you know, like, um, uh, let's build something, right? Like just, just to give a human analogy to sort of make this understandable, right? Let's construct something, let's say, right? Um, here, I construct, um, uh, I, I design and I manufacture a, a mobile phone, right? A smartphone. Um, and then someone comes here from um, a remote place, right? From, you know, an, an Amazonian um, tribesman comes here, Right? And, and looks at this and, um, you know, uses it as um, a frisbee or something like that, right? Um, has, he, has he understood what this really means? Um, you'd say, well, probably he hasn't because that's not, like, its function, right? Um, what this really is, I mean, he, the, the guy's claiming this is really a frisbee. He's insisting it's a frisbee because he's using it in that way, right? He's viewing it as that. However, um, he can't be said to be um, really right because what it really is depends on the intention of its maker. Right? Um, so every single event that Allah has created, right? every single thing that Allah has written in the Qadr, in other words, right? um, everything that Allah has written in the Qadr and then put into motion, logically subsequent to that, um, is intended to be... Um, a locus for the manifestation of Allah's beauty, Allah's names and attributes. And that goes for every single thing. Now, I had this conversation once with, with someone, right, and he objected as follows. He said, well, surely that can't be right, you know. Um, he said, well, does everything manifest divine beauty? He said, yeah, but he said, I just came from the toilet, right? I just came from the toilet, right? I just did number twos in the toilet. How does that manifest divine beauty? Yeah, go, go, tell me that, right? And I said, what do you mean? Are you crazy? Um, that's divine beauty is manifested in that event in countless ways, right? I mean, there's a great, great hikmah in that occurring, right? Um, it, it, uh, um, it is a manifestation, for example, of divine names such as Al-Qutus, 
Okay, the most holy. Um, it's one of, yeah, you know, it's one of um, billions and billions of manifestations of the name of Qutus. The name of Qutus, Bedizaman's going to say, is manifested all over the universe all the time. Um, yeah, everywhere Allah is, you know, manifesting his holiness. Like, for example, um, uh, there's a star, right, and it grows into a supernova over time. Yeah, then it explodes, okay? It explodes. And then the debris of that, it's kind of vacuumed up in a way by a black hole. Right? There you have um, a manifestation of Qutus, right? Or, uh, you know, a more local example, uh, a human being or you know, any kind of biological uh, entity uh, dies, um, and it's buried in the earth. And then what happens is that these microbes come along and, you know, um, um, bring about its um, uh, decomposition. Right? Um, and it's sort of transmuted, it's transformed, and later flowers grow out of it and, and so on. Or we use it as coal, etc., etc. That corpse doesn't just remain there to putrefy the earth. Okay? Um, there's a cleansing that goes on everywhere and all the time. Um, you know, and if there's any uncleanliness for a certain time, it's generally due to us being lazy. All right. So, yeah, certainly my going to the toilet even um, is an, an occasion for the manifestation of names like Kutus and, and, and many other names. Okay. Um, uh, like it's a great, great Rahmah. Like if you weren't able to go to the toilet, like you just consider this, just always consider its absence right? for any given thing that you think doesn't manifest divine beauty, just consider its absence. Imagine you were constipated and couldn't go to the toilet, right? Um, yeah, uh, you know, that's going to be painful. It's not going to be to your liking. But what happens is, right, in the event in which you're able to relieve yourself even, um, there's great rahmah, there's great mercy, there's great compassion manifested. Divine names are being manifested in every single event, however um, distant you might think that it is from beauty. Okay? Um, that's the mark, that's the essence of things, right? That's the, uh, rather the, the hakika, right? The reality of all things. Everything exists just to, right? Um, in a way, things are like epistemic devices, right? They're there to enable us to know. To know what? To know that our creator is a being of absolute beauty and perfection, okay? Um, that's what we're here to learn. That's what we're here to come to know. Um, and our worshipping is meant to um, occur in conjunction with or as a result, as a consequence of this act of you know, um, seeing that or learning that, experiencing that Allah is a being of beauty and perfection. Um, so, you know, this whole business of things acting as um, places for the manifestation of Allah's beauty, manifestation of the beauty of his names and attributes, uh, it's a very central notion in our religion. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, like we all have, we all know of the um, verse in the Quran that reminds us that Allah did not create jinn and mankind other than to worship him, right? We all know this verse. Uh, most of us have heard this verse. Um, yeah, like we ought to know that this business of being created for worship, right, it's going to be understood. It's going to be analysed in terms of this whole notion of, yeah, Allah's beauty is manifested everywhere and we are here to come to know that beauty, okay? Um, that's your real job. <laughs> you know, we think that our role here, we think mistakenly, um, we think that our role is to, for example, um, you know, be able to consume uh, the greatest amount of, you know, um, you know like, obtain the greatest amount of utility, right, to use an economic term. I want to maximise our utility, right? Someone's going to say, that's the job of a human being. Or my job is to, you know, um, uh, 
uh, go to university, um, do well so that I can get a high-paying job, um, therefore have a certain status in the community, therefore attract the most attractive partner and live happily ever after in that sense. Um, uh, actually, you know, actually, um, if, if you did those sorts of things and that's all you did, right, in, in other words, if you did those things um, sans worship, right, without worship, right, in a non-worshipful way, um, you'd be failing, like quite, quite the opposite of um, doing well, you would have abysmally failed in your duty as a human being. The human being's job is nothing other than to worship Allah, which is actually a great, great honour. It's a great good. It's an, but this one's going to say elsewhere, it's an indescribable good. Because why is it such a great good? Um, because like, we've been created to enjoy beauty, really. That's what, it, that's what things um, really um, boil down to. Right? You've been created to enjoy divine beauty. You've been given consciousness, you've been given life, first of all, um, consciousness, intellect, um, a sense of uh, you know, seeing and hearing and taste and smell and so on. You've been given countless, countless faculties and abilities all so that you can do this. Um, it's a great, great good. It's not a burden. To be a worshipper is by no means a burden. It's by no means something to you know something difficult or um, something you know to be seen as uh, just something I've got to endure. You know, no, no. It's once you understand what worship actually entails, it entails this you know uh, experiential knowledge of divine beauty. Um, then you see it's a great, great, great good, and it's a it's it's something that you continue to do for all eternity. <laughs> um, like you know, if you were. Like, if you could sort of zoom back right, and view your life in its entirety, I mean your whole life, your life here on earth and your entire life in the afterlife, right? You, as a, as a you know, Muslim, like, you know, as a pious Muslim, if you could view all of that, um, yeah, you're going to see where you've got this kind of um, infinitely long life where you're doing nothing but just enjoying beauty and then just like an infinitesimally small aspect of it, a tiny, tiny part of it, where you're still doing that same thing, you're still enjoying beauty, but it's just that um, uh, you, know, you enjoy beauty in this way where um, you, know, you come to know certain aspects of divine beauty in contradistinction to um, their apparent opposites. <laughs> um, yeah, like... For example, like just to give a basic example, what happens is that sometimes, you know, um, only in this infinitesimally small segment of my life, right, um, not, not the vast majority of it, just this tiny, tiny segment of my life, um, sometimes I get ill or I go hungry and things like that. Um, but there are also manifestations of divine beauty. There are also occasions for the um, coming to know divine beauty, right? How so? Well, I mean, in, in, in many ways... and. You know, it's probably the topic of another conversation, but, you know, just briefly, like, for example, what happens is I get ill, um, and then later I'm healed from that in a, in a manifestation of, of the beautiful divine name of Shafir, the healer. I'm healed of that, and then I enjoy a certain kind of beauty that I couldn't, couldn't otherwise have known. That kind of beauty being the relief one feels when one goes from being in pain to not being in pain, right? Um, and then the great, great good... Right, that one um, attains, right, where one is able to now appreciate the beauty of good health in contradistinction to ill health. Right? Um, I mean, that's the reality. We wouldn't be able to appreciate health if it wasn't 
uh, for its apparent opposite being illness. You know? um, so, yeah, like even pain, even illness, even difficulty, even calamity, even they are, in a slightly indirect way, occasions for the coming to know Allah's absolute beauty and perfection. All right? um, that's the hakika. That's how the universe is going to be viewed. Right? That's how the entire created realm is going to be viewed. Okay? Um, so, yeah, if we can recall this set of notions, if we can recall this concept that um, we've just discussed now, um, almost everything else in the religion and everything else we discuss here can be understood in relation to it. You know? um, so, yeah, so let's read now um, this seventh point, right, where he's going to talk about adab, right? So what we'll do, inshallah, in our remaining time, like we'll come to understand, inshallah, what adab is, right? You know, just roughly what adab is. Um, and how does it relate to the divine names, right? In what's, what is its relationship to um, this business of Allah's you know, divine names and attributes and them being manifested here in this world, okay? Um, so, again, this is the 11th flash, 7th point. The sunnah, the practices of the, pro- of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, peace be upon him, Right, are courtesy. Right, so we're going to see adab translated here in probably four or five different ways. Right, um, adab here right, as courtesy. Right, and all of these, all of these English words that are going to be used to translate it, they can all, they're all going to help us bit by bit to understand what this adab is. Right, um, and probably the reason why a different word is used on each occasion is that like not, no one of them can on its own capture its meaning. Right, yeah, uh, that's the nature of Arabic. Right, so. Um, all right, so the practices of the Prophet, peace be upon him, are adab. Right? They're coextensive with adab. Right? They're a courtesy. There is no matter among them beneath which a nur, a light, and an adab, a courtesy, is not to be found. Okay. The noble Prophet, upon whom be blessings and peace, said, My Rabb, my sustainer, taught me good conduct, taught me adab, and how well he taught me. All right? So we've just seen adab translated there as good conduct, and so far, courtesy. Right? Yes, one who studies the prophet Sirah, his biography, and knows his sunnah, his practices, will certainly understand that Almighty Allah gathered together in his Habib, his beloved, all the varieties of adab and good, all the varieties of courtesy and good conduct. One who gives up the sunnah abandons, abandons adab. He verifies the rule the ill-mannered person is deprived of lutuf, divine favour, and is discourteous in a way that causes him loss. Okay. I'll just talk about that little section first, right? And then we're going to go on to this little problem that Bedouzman identifies, this little objection, if you will, right? So he said there in that last sentence, the ill-mannered person, right, the person who, who has not acted in accordance with the sunnah and therefore has simultaneously not manifested adab, he has not shown adab, um, what has he done? He's... he's He's, been, he's had a lack of adab in a way that causes him loss, right? It, it, is, it is a great loss. And given what we've just said, right, 
given everything that we've said at the start of this conversation, right, this sort of makes sense because, like, what happens is, like, like what is a DAB first of all, right? Like, it's going to be understood like this. Right? Um, to show, maybe, maybe the best way to understand it is um, by considering its opposite, right, a lack of DAB, right? What is a lack of DAB? Um, it's like this, right? Um, there are certain things that aren't haram as such, right? Like, we all know, like, the, the halal haram distinction, right? You know, those things which are um, uh, halal, you know, are permissible. Those things which are haram are uh, impermissible. Now, um, notice that, like, we might be familiar with this expression, we might be familiar with this notion in the religion, right? You know, Allah informs us that um, the things that are most pleasing to him, right, the things that he loves to see us do the most, right, that are most beautiful in his view, right, are just that set of things, right, are just those things which is made obligatory. Right? And doesn't that make sense? Right? Allah has made certain things obligatory for us. Right, certain forms of ritual worship, uh, in general, the doing of good and the forbid, you know, the the staying away from evil. Right? He's made certain things obligatory for us, um, and uh, you know, and it's those things which he finds most beautiful. Like if there was something else more beautiful than them, right? So you know, yeah, consider like the set of uh, things that are uh, that are obligatory. Draw a circle around that. Now, if there was something more beautiful than um, what's in that circle, then, um, I mean, it's impossible there should be something more beautiful than what's in that circle because then it would have been included in that circle. Right? If there was something more pleasing to Allah than what's in that circle, of course he would have made that obligatory for you. Right? Why so? It's because, remember, he's created us to come to know his beauty and perfection. And, and the key way that we do that the main way that we come to know his beauty and perfection is by actually mirroring it. Right? And this is an important notion. Like, we mirror his beauty. Like, we, we mirror it and through that we gain an experience. We gain this experiential knowledge of his beauty. Right? So let's go back to that example that I gave of you know, a person needing some uh, medical help, right? It needs some first aid. Um, I go over and I help him. Right? When I do that, Remember I said that, actually, I can't claim ownership of the beauty in that. Right? Why can't I claim ownership of the beauty of that physical uh, set of events? Well, because I'm not the one who does them. Right? Allah is the one who has the power to create physical events, not I. Um, but through the mystery of the ruh and the experiences that it's able to have, the feelings that it's able to have, what happens is that I kind of feel you know, what it's like. like I kind of get to experience that event, right? It's wondrous. It's quite a... I mean, the Ruh is a wondrous, wondrous creation. Uh, it's an indescribably wondrous creation. Uh, it enables you to you know, have this, yeah, experiential um, knowledge, right? It, it, it enables you to sort of, yeah, you know, be in the picture, so to speak. Like, imagine, like, you know, I watch on TV certain... Um, Certain things, like I watch on TV, let's say a soccer match, but I can't really feel what it feels like to kick the ball and score the goal and so on, right? Um, uh, what Allah does, right, it's like he creates this whole um, tapestry of events, right? This whole universe is just a place where he manifests his beauty. Right? He enables us to view it, but more than that, he enables us to sort of feel it. He enables us to experience it, right? Um, Although we're not the ones that uh, can be held responsible for 
the doing of those physical events, certainly we feel as though we do them. Yeah? I feel as though I'm the one who really picks this up. Right? Um, and when a man needs first aid, I really do feel as though I'm the one that gave him that first aid. Um, and by doing that, I come to have this experiential knowledge of what it means, for example, for Allah to manifest the beauty of his healing. Right? Now, every single event that we're involved in has got to be understood along those lines. Um, their only purpose is there for us to know Allah's beauty because Allah didn't create us for anything else other than that <laughs> All right. we're created to come to know his beauty Right? we're created to be worshippers um, yeah, we di- we- he doesn't need us to feed people um, you know, he doesn't need us to go to Africa and dig wells and things like that what he does command that we do right, is still to experience those things but just not to claim ownership of them right? just through them, just to marvel at the beauty of his names and attributes. Yeah? So, like, if I do go to Africa and dig a well and then, you know, a bunch of, you know, little kids can come along and drink and be satiated of their thirst, right, I can just marvel at the beauty of Allah's, you know, Rahman, for example, you know, um, and his names like, um, you know, Rahman, Rahim and Shafi and, and so on. And you can make countless examples for yourself. All right. Um, so that's the reality of the situation, right? Um, you know... Uh, I'm created to do things like that. So yeah, therefore, you know, when I uh, when I give first aid to to somebody, um, yeah, that's all I'm doing. Um, I'm just having an experience of divine beauty. Like I'm not uh, myself doing those events, right? That's a key key point to remember. Um, now, there are certain things, however, right? Um, there are certain things which um, like, look, so I've just said that the obligatory things, right? Um, we've been commanded to do them so that we can come to experience divine beauty. That's their function, right? If Allah commands, you know, the doing of certain things, like you know, feed your family, um, uh, render assistance to the person who needs it, and so on. If He's commanded the doing of these sorts of things, it's because they all form occasions. They all um, enable us to be able to um, fulfil our duty as worshippers and come, and come to know his beauty and perfection. Right? Therefore, um, if something has been made haram, like if something has been made um, impermissible, right, it's generally going to be because, why? If you engage in that sort of thing, um, rather than coming to know divine beauty there, right, rather than do something, rather than have an experience of divine beauty there, you're going to be engaging in something Right? You're going to be choosing, in other words, something that's displeasing to Allah, something that's ugly, right? So, like, let's say, for example, rather than um, render first aid to somebody, um, you know, I instead choose to take out a knife and stab someone. <laughs> right? Imagine I choose to do something like that. Um, uh, in making that particular choice, I'm, am I manifesting, uh, uh, am I acting as a mirror to Allah's beauty? Um, in the sense described a, a moment ago? Like, am I uh, coming to have an experience of divine beauty? I'm, I'm not. The making of a choice like that um, uh, does not amount to that. It does not amount to that. Um, now, in the subsequent physical event that occurs, right, in which my arm moves and um, a knife goes into someone's um, you know, uh, stomach or chest or something like that, um, it can't be said that Allah does something evil there, right? That's the thing, like, we mustn't get confused here, right? Because um, 
what the ugliness in that whole event consists only in the um, incorrect choice that I've made, right? The mental event in, in which I make an incorrect choice, right? Yeah, that is, um, that is ugly, but that belongs entirely to me. That belongs to I, right? um, But the physical event that Allah then creates, right? Um, it's still good, right? Why? Because Allah still achieves various goods out of it. Like, for example, let's say um, the man is stabbed um, and then he dies, right? Allah creates his death and then... Allah uh, doesn't do some evil there. What he does is he takes him to Jannah, let's say, and, you know, um, he, he gains the rank of Shahid, let's say, because he's been killed unjustly, right? Let's say we're talking about some, you know, Muslim brother here. I've stabbed the Muslim brother. Um, he gains the rank of Shahid and he goes to Jannah. So what evil has Allah done there, you know? Um, so in Allah's creating someone's death, he never does an evil, okay? So we mustn't confuse, we mustn't get confused in there, right? The evil that occurs consists only in my making an incorrect choice. All right. Um, right. So anyway, all of this is just preliminary to understanding like this issue of adab. Right? Um, so you've got halal and haram, which pertain to um, beauty versus ugliness. Right? If something is um, halal, I, I engage in it, and therefore I come to know divine beauty. Right? But if I make a haram choice, um, I fail to do that. Okay? And that's why it's haram. Now you've got this whole other set of actions, right? Um, there are certain things that they're um, not so attractive. They're not so attractive. It's just that they're unattractive um, to a lesser degree than the set of things that are haram. All right? um, so they're not, be, they're not so unattractive as to be made impermissible by Allah. Um, but, yeah, they're not, um, they're not ideal. They're not ideal for you to engage in. Um, actions like that, right, are actions that we refer to as being contrary to adab. All right. So um, if, we, if something is contrary to adab, yeah, it's just that um, it's it's not so pleasant, it's not so um, pleasing to Allah, um, but it's not quite at the degree of haram. All right? um, for example, right, um, a man raises his voice in the mosque. Uh, um, I don't know, maybe that's a haram, brother. Tell me, is that, was it, is that a haram or just a lack of adab? Yeah, so, yeah, good. I, I, I hope it's not. Because right, otherwise it would be a bad example. All right, so a man raises his voice. Or a woman raises a voice in the mosque. Right. Maybe that's haram. <laughs> a man raises his voice in the mosque. Um, now, he hasn't done a haram, let's pretend, um, but certainly he's acted contrary to adab. Right? It's not pleasing to Allah. Right? What would have been better for that person? Right? What would have been better for that person? Bearing in mind that they've been created to worship. In other words, they've been created to come to know divine beauty. And the way, the main way we come to know divine beauty is not by reading about it in a book per se, rather by having certain experiences, making certain choices, and therefore being um, involved in certain experiences. Right? It's that experiential knowledge right, that enables us to know Allah. The person's been created for that. Um, now, if that's his job, he best not raise his voice in the mosque, okay? Um, because what's better, what's closer to beauty, right? What's going to enable him to know divine beauty better than that is to use a lower voice, let's say, you know, um, uh, in the mosque, right? So you can make examples for any, anything else that's contrary to adab, all right? Now, how do we know what's... Contrary to adab, uh, or what's halal or what's haram? Like, well, we know what's halal and haram from the Sharia. Right? The Sharia 
sets out what's halal and haram. Right? Now, we know what's in keeping with adab or what's contrary to adab, how? By the, by the sunnah. We also know halal versus haram by the sunnah, right? Because, yeah, you know, uh, of course our Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, had among his practices, of course, all the things that were obligatory, of course, and he avoided everything that was haram. Okay, I mean, as a prophet, um, he yeah he committed no haram. Um, so you know we certainly know the halal versus haram from the sunnah, but yeah, matters of adab too, right? If you want to know whether or not something is uh, in keeping with or contrary to adab, you need only consult and correctly interpret. Moreover, right, the the sunnah, right, the practices of the prophet, right, which appear in the hadith. Okay, um, so. Now, let's say a person, right, as Bedou Zaman says here, let's say he gives up the sunnah, right? Let's say a person says, oh, I'm not going to, I'm only going to do some sunnah, right? I'm going to, like, um, I'll do certain sunnahs, but others I'll just, like, um, for no good reason, like, you know, for no good excuse, I'll just give them up. Like, here, here's an example, right? It's sunnah to drink uh, water, um, not in a standing position, but seated, right? Um, right? If I did drink standing, um, that's not haram as such, but it's contrary to adab. Why? It's contrary to sunnah, right? Um, so th those two are synonymous, right? All things that, um, like anything that's contrary to the sunnah um, is either going to be contrary to adab or it's going to be haram, right? Depending on its severity. Um, our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, I never, I never eat in a, whilst reclining, okay? Um, Whenever he would eat, he would eat, um, yeah, like sort of, um, yeah, just not, not leaning back on a couch or whatever, right? He'd be sort of leaning forward. And there's certain hikmah in that, like, for example, um, like uh, um, one becomes aware of one's satiety um, quick, more quickly, right? You know, it's, it's easier to become aware of your satiety when you're leaning forward. Like, when you're not leaning forward, it's just easier to overeat, right? For example, right? It's one of the... Um, stated hikmah of this and uh, you know uh, there are going to be countless hikmah um, you know uh, to it but the main thing is that yeah it's just if it's one of his practices just know this right if you give that up if you just say look I don't care I'm watching Netflix um, and this is what's most comfortable for me I just sit back with my bag of chips um, you know and I'm just going to munch away because that's what's most comfortable for me I mean you can do that if you want and it's not haram but you're not, you're not going to be doing your job as a worshipper maximally. You're not going to be doing it as well as you could be, right? Um, because you're not going to be... Um, you're going to be appearing unattractive um, to Allah vis-a-vis, -vis, right? In, 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 um, uh, in relation to, um, or relative to, rather, um, the situation where you just lean forward, right? Don't eat. If you don't, don't eat leaning back, uh, eat leaning forward. Um, you know, generally this will occur you know, um, uh, on the floor, right? That's, that's another sunnah, to eat on the floor and so on because that, what's, that's what, what enables you to lean forward um, as opposed to when you're on a chair and so on, right? I mean, you can give up all of these sunnah things um, if you want to and you wouldn't be doing a haram necessarily um, but, uh, yeah, not, not, not every... Not every breach of the sunnah is haram, right? um, but it will be contrary to adab. Right? It will be contrary to adab, and therefore you will be losing that opportunity to um, have that experiential knowledge of divine beauty that we spoke about, because that's what happens. Right? When you follow the sunnah and demonstrate adab, 
that's actually what you're doing. Right? You're um, coming to know divine beauty um, experientially, right? Um, through the actions that you're involved in, yeah, you know, your literal physical body acts as a locus for the manifestation or for the reflection of the beauty of various divine names and attributes. And that is the um, very essence of worship. That's what you're created for. Um, so, yeah, it's for that reason that he says that if you fail to do it, right, it's a great loss. It's a great, great loss. I mean, it's not... To, it, it's like we take it far too lightly, put it that way. We take it too lightly. These breaches of... Sunnah, these breaches of adab, we take them far too lightly because we fail to understand how they relate to the worship, how they relate to coming to know Allah's beauty and perfection. Um, you know, and, and who, who wouldn't want to know? Like, like ask yourself this, like, um, what kind of a loss is it right, to fail to know divine beauty? What kind of a loss is that? It can only be described as an infinite loss right? because you're talking about a being of infinite beauty and perfection. To fail to, to just willy-nilly um, neglect to take an opportunity to come to know that instance of divine beauty, um, uh, yeah, you know, it's to miss out on a great, great good, an, in, an infinite good. Right? It's an absolute good. Right? It's not the sort of good that can be chopped up into little pieces. No, like, it's an absolute good. Um, yeah, so it's important. Now, we did start a little bit late. Um, you guys have, do you guys insist that we finish at five or are you happy to go on for another five or so minutes or it's up to you guys uh it's five o'clock we're meant to finish at five but if you guys have got other commitments i can either either end on that point or we can yeah have a quick look at this sort of objection it's up to you guys well let's get a consensus five minutes you're happy yeah any any objections you're free to leave anyway if anyone does need to leave yeah there, there will be the recording um uploaded yeah you know by tomorrow inshallah so all right so let's quickly have a look at this then Someone worries, right, like this. How can there be adab, right? How can there be courtesy or adab in the face of the... This is the Noah of all things. It's a divine name. I'm pretty sure in the original, um, which I haven't got open, Alam um, al-Ghuyub, right? The Noah of all things, Alam al-Ghuyub. The Noah of everything that's hidden, yeah? Um, how can there be courtesy in the face of Allah, in other words, right, who is the knower of all things, who sees and knows everything and from whom nothing can be hidden? Situations which cause shame or embarrassment cannot be concealed from him. One sort of adab is covering right, the private parts, right, the necessary members, and veiling states which are distasteful. But nothing can be hidden from the sight of the knower of all things. Alright, so you see the problem, like, um, we're being asked to have adab, right? Why? Ultimately because we want to um, act as a place of manifestation for the beauty and perfection of Allah's names and attributes. Like, when Allah views us, in other words, right, what should occur is that Allah should see his own beauty reflected in the mirror of our being, right? In the way that I've chosen to act, yeah, in the way that I've chosen... Allah should right, be pleased with me because he sees in my choice and then the subsequent physical action that he then creates after that choice, he sees his own beauty shine. Right? He sees his own names and the beauty and perfection of his own names and attributes. Right? Um, that's actually one of the reasons why he's created the whole universe. Right? Like, why has he created this universe with other observers in it? 
I mean, he could have just created a, be a universe with no conscious beings. Okay. And he would have just observed um, the manifestations of his own beauty and perfection. But no, he also creates other conscious beings. Because what happens is that when he creates conscious beings, he sees his own beauty through their eyes. That's how Buddhism describes it. All right. He sees his own beauty through their eyes. All right. uh, in other words, he sees you in joy and you love his beauty as he loves his own beauty. Right? Um, and in that is a, a very elevated, right? a very kutsi, um, a holy or a perfect, a free of imperfection, um, pleasure for Allah. Right? Yeah, Allah has, in a way, suitable to him. Right? He has joy, that Zaman describes. Right? He has a kind of joy if the term is permissible. Okay? Um, but it's not the sort of joy or pleasure or happiness that we have. You know, um, yeah, like, I mean, we know, like, that Allah has to have um, pleasure because why? There's this whole business of him being either pleased or displeased with us. Right? If he's pleased with me, that means he has pleasure, right? Well, he has pleasure in a way suitable to him. Yeah? So that's an important thing to know about Allah. Right? Um, but it's a kutsi, it's a perfect pleasure. It's not the sort of pleasure to which any fault or imperfection could, can be imputed. No, right? So Allah has this um, when. I see his beauty manifested. Okay. Um, all right. If that's the case, right, if Allah wants to see his beauty manifested all the time, right, um, through my eyes, right, if he wants to see me, in other words, always make good choices and, and, and act beautifully so that he can see his beauty shine in the mirror of my being, if that's the case, then how can that be, right, when sometimes I go to the toilet and do number twos or I vomit or, um, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm unveiled, right? Yeah, if I go to the toilet, I'm not covered. I'm unveiled, aren't I, for example? Um, right? It seems that it's just not possible to show adab, right, all the time or to be beautiful in Allah's view all the time. Right? It just seems that it's not possible. Well, Buddhism is going to say, well, that kind of thinking, it's wrong-headed. Right? It's a mistake. Giving it the greatest importance, the glorious creator wants to show his art as beautiful. He veils detestable things and he attracts attention to his bounties by decorating them. So too, he wants to show his creatures and servants as beautiful to other conscious beings. Their appearing in ugly situations is a sort of rebellion against his names like Jamil, beauteous, Adorna, Muzayin, subtle, Latif, and wise Hakim, right? and is contrary to Adab. Right? Thus, the, the Adab, the courtesy of the practices of the Prophet, peace be upon him, is to assume a manner of pure courtesy within the bounds of the glorious Maker's names. Right? Secondly, right? as a doctor, a doctor may examine the most private member of someone right, who is canonically a stranger to him. And if necessary, it may be shown to him. And this may not be said to be discourteous, right? So he's giving an analogy here, right? Uh, this may not be said to be discourteous. Indeed, it may be said that the conduct of medicine requires this. But the same doctor may not examine such a private member, such a private part, just as a common man or under the title of, let's say, preacher or teacher. And courtesy, adab, cannot issue a fatwa permitting it to be shown. To show it to him in such a way would be shameless. In just the same way, the glorious maker has numerous names and each name has a different manifestation. For example, just as the name of oft-forgiving 
requires the existence of sins, right? and the name of Vela, Sattar, right? the existence of faults, so too the name of Jamil, beauteous, does not wish to see ugliness. Names pertaining to divine beauty and perfection like Latif, Kerim, Hakim, and Rahim, or compassionate, require that beings be in the most beautiful form and the best possible situations, and those names pertaining to beauty and perfection want to display their beauties in the view of angels, spirit beings, jinn and man, through the beautiful states and fine conduct of beings. Right, last sentence. Thus, the, the conduct of the practices, the sunnah, are the signs of this elevated conduct and its principles and samples. Right. I apologise again for the, as I said last week, like the English translation is sometimes quite tough, you know, um, to make sense of, right? But you know, just in, in, in brief, like, like all that's being said there, right? Um, a couple of very brief points, right? It's just that um, it's not that um, there are some, first of all, right, there are some situations, as I described earlier, right, there are some situations where we think that we're being... Um, ugly, like in the sense that we think that there can be no beauty at all in that situation, right? You know, like my going to the toilet, right? My friend wondered how can that, you know, be a manifestation or a mirroring of Allah's beauty in any way? Um, like we already discussed, actually, that's wrong-headed, right? Um, yes, like it does appear to you that, you know, um, it's um, unattractive, um, however, there are some different divine names being manifested there that you might not have been aware of, right? You know, like names like Qutus, um, names like Shafi um, and Rahman Rahim, they're still being manifested there, right? It's just that you've, you've not had sufficient training in recognising them, right? You've got to learn. You've got to learn to recognise the manifestations of these names. They're always there, okay? Um, that's the first thing to keep in mind, right? Um, now, the second thing is this, right? The second thing is this. Uh, not, every, not every situation... Right, in which I act in a way that's apparently discourteous, right? Um, is is discourteous, right? Like something can be discourteous. Let, let, let me put it this way: something uh, discourtesy or lack of adab, it's context sensitive. All right, uh, it depends on the context whether or not it actually amounts to adab uh, or a lack of adab. Right? So you know the person saying, "Well, hang on. Um, part of adab is to veil yourself, right? The objective here, right? Part of adab is to veil yourself, is to not show your private parts. But you know, um, then again, um, you know, when I'm in the toilet, I do unveil myself, like I do uncover myself, right? So where's the adab in that? You know. Um, so the mistake there is this: that it's not a lack of adab. Um, to uncover yourself in every situation, right? So, like, because who is Adab for in the first instance, right? Primarily, like, when you're showing Adab, right, the being in mind has got to be Allah, all right? Um, so, all right, so bearing that in mind, right, not every situation in which I'm unveiled, right, is a breach of that Adab, right, in Allah's view, okay? Um, now, Allah has set out the boundaries for what counts as um, a, a lack of adab by unveiling yourself. He set out the boundaries for that. He set out the truth conditions for that. In other words, okay. Um, if I was to unveil myself here in this room, yes, that's the lack, and that's the, in fact that's going to be haram. All right, that's going to be definitely right. That's definitely going to be ugly. Okay. Um, or if I um, here's my doctor, right, but he's not here as my doctor, right. He's here as my friend. 
He's, or is he is my soccer coach, right? He's got, like, that can happen, right? A doctor can be a soccer coach and a doctor, right? <laughs> okay. Um, if I unveil myself, if I show my private parts to him at the soccer training, right, that's definitely a lack of adab. Okay. Um, but if I'm to show my private parts to him in the doctor's surgery, in circumstances where, you know, um, uh, you know, there's some ailment, right, that I'm seeking attention for, that I'm seeking treatment for, then um, that's not a lack of adab. Uh, now, in what form have these boundaries been laid out? Right, easy. Just refer to the sunnah. Okay? That's what he's saying there in that last sentence, right? Uh, right? The conduct of the practices, the sunnah, are the signs of this elevated conduct and its principles and samples. Right? So it's wrong-headed, it's completely wrong-headed to think that, you know, um, instances of a lack of adab are, you know, insensitive to context. Yeah? Right? Um, in, in other words, when considering whether or not something counts as a lack of adab, you've got to take into account the particular context. Right? And in some contexts, yes, they'll be unattractive and you'll, you know, uh, will, will, will count as a lack of adab. You will have failed to manifest divine beauty there. You will fail to come to know Allah's beauty there to the required extent. Um, but in other cases, not so. Not so. It's quite, quite permissible. Like, in fact, when I unveil myself to my doctor, what's happening there? Allah's name is Shafi, he's receiving a manifestation, for example. Allah's name is like Rahman, Rahim, and so on, right? So we see in the end, guys, like, just to finish off that, um, a knowledge of the divine names becomes quite critical, you know? Uh, a knowledge of the divine names, okay? Um, like, uh, does anyone know that how the hadith goes? Right? Whoever comes to, like, wh whoever comes to know all of the divine names, the 99 divine names, um, Gets a great reward. Like uh, it's. Uh, uh, does anyone remember the hadith? I can't recall exactly how it goes. Um, there's a hadith that says that whoever whoever um, memorizes or comes to learn all of the Ismail husna, um, yeah, I mean that's uh, you, you, you're pretty much guaranteed gender just from that, right? Um, but of course, the knowing has got to be understood in terms of like an internalization as well. You can't just like know it like you know in this sort of intellectual way, but yet not internalise them, right? You've got to actually internalise them. You've got to live in accordance with them, right? Yeah? Um, it's extremely important, right? Um, the divine names, they have been made known to us for this purpose, right? Like, like, why has Allah described himself to us in terms of these names, right? And in fact, there are actually much more names than the 99 of Ismail Husayn. There's like a thousand and one names in the uh, Jershan al-Kabir, right? Why? Because it enables us to um, fulfil our duty as worshippers. If we don't know the divine names, then we're unable to make these we're unable to make these distinctions. We're going to make these mistakes of you know thinking that well you know hey it's a lack of adab to go to the toilet or, or things like that. We're not going to quite understand like um, all the different contexts in which it's possible to know divine beauty. Right? Knowing the divine names is like a door, a gateway to being able to know Allah's beauty, which is the purpose of our creation. Yeah. I'll end on that note. I'll end on that note. Subhanakallah Thanks guys. Sorry, I did go a little bit over time. A little bit over time, but yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, I know it's tough. <laughs> it's hard to listen, easy to talk.